0: Today's scripture, as we continue through the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 35. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet at his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God
1: you, but I feel like Abby can sing uh, one of her originals anytime she wants. She so gives me a dirty look whenever I compliment her. I don't, I don't understand. Thank you, Mr. Darwin. Appreciate you reading. He gives me a wink when I compliment him, <laughs> which one of them likes me more. Friends, uh, for those of you who have not been with us, we've been going through the gospel of Luke for this year. It's actually going to take us a year and a half And I'm calling it the spicy gospel uh, because Luke has all kinds of spicy things to say. uh, Things that are going to be challenging to us in the way uh, we live our life and the way we think about this, this life called the Christian life. And so I want to start here. Last week, I got to go to a mass clergy meeting from the region. And so when you go to a regional event, you, of course, meet people you don't know. And I met this pastor there who I was both... Equal parts fascinated by him. And also my inner skeptic came out whenever I was talking to him. So let me explain. This guy said that every single week, he and his wife take a full-on Sabbath. Not just a day off, but that every single week, he and his wife have a full day of contemplation, rest, and prayer. And part of their Sabbath is also that they refuse to participate in capitalism for that whole day. Meaning that they do not buy, they do not sell, they don't drive their car anywhere, they prepare all of their meals before so that they don't even have to make their food that day, and they do not eat out on their Sabbath day. I am both fascinated and skeptical of this. I'm fascinated because I am genuinely inspired by the radical way that they have chosen to live. To take a full day of the week where they refuse to participate in an economy that both locally and internationally exploits. I am drawn to the idea of not shopping for items made by slave labor and child labor. I am fascinated by people who take a whole day, for example, and say we're not going to eat at a restaurant where people are more than likely paid under a livable wage. I'm also skeptical. I'm skeptical because does he use a cell phone? Almost all of our cell phones are made by slave labor in some other part of the world. Do they wear clothes or do they walk around naked all day? Almost all of our clothes are made by slave labor in some other part of the world. Sure, he didn't. Prepare his food that day and didn't buy his food that day but did he buy it from a rest a, a, a store a grocery store that pays a livable wage to the employees and even if they, he did and that store does did did the store pay a factory or a farm for that food? And does that factory and that farm pay their employees a livable wage? See, like it keeps backing up. And, and your skepti- my, my skepticism just kept on going, especially because in the midst of this, I went to bed that one one night and I uh, just pulled up my New York Times app and I read an article uh, about a New York Times investigation that uncovered a Cheerios factory that was employing 12, 13, 14-year-old migrant children, to package Cheerios, even the most basic, bland food that you and I eat, we don't realize the levels of oppression that go in to even making that food. So can you ever escape capitalism? Can you ever escape the market? And so I am fascinated by a refusal to live according to the market's dictates. I am fascinated by somebody who makes an intentional decision to say, what might my Christian life call me to do? I'm fascinated by people who try to go back not to Sabbath as some sort of just day off, but the original intention of the Sabbath to reset and restart God's creation around God's intentions and not exploitation. But I'm also skeptical because I don't know that we can ever escape it. One saying goes, there is no ethical spending under capitalism. Zero, none. I would like to coin a new term, which is that there is also no breathing. That isn't capitalistic breathing. Everything we do is wrapped up in the market. Melissa Flores Bixler, who is a Mennonite pastor, she said, despite our attention to fair trade and conscience shopping, there is no extracting ourselves in total from the exploitations of labor, global systems of corporate theft, corporations control of nations none and she's a Mennonite pastor so we're talking about people who if anyone has ever escaped the market it's them and she says even we can't do it and frankly Jesus does not help us that much, right? You did not come to hear me just lament about capitalism. You came here to, for me to talk about Jesus. And Jesus does not help us that much. To quote her again, Jesus, while owning very little, is often seen enjoying rich meals and accepting showy gifts like expensive perfume poured out on his feet. Do you remember that story? I believe it's somewhere in John The sinful woman comes and she bows down at Jesus' feet and she breaks the expensive perfume. And do you remember how the crowd responded when they saw it happen? Jesus, why would you let her do that? Do you know that we could have taken that perfume, sold it for thousands of dollars, and given that money to the poor? And Jesus says, let her do it. It's a symbol of my suffering. Like you can't, you can't symbolize your suffering in a cheaper way. So frankly, Jesus doesn't seem to help that much. And I think our passage today only further complicates it. Because whereas the woman who broke the perfume on Jesus' feet was merely labeled a generic sinner, Levi has a very specific sin that is pointed out. And it is a sin that we would have hated him for. Let me say that again, church people. Because I know that as church people, we put on our smiley faces and we pretend like we don't hate anybody. We would have hated him. Levi is a Jewish man who works for the occupying Roman Empire. So he's, he's a blood trader. He works for the Ro- occupying Roman Empire, enforcing their tax codes, which are themselves exploitive. Only he goes further by skimming off the top. That's how he makes his living. In a kind of reverse Robin Hood, he robs the poor in his own community in order to give to the rich Roman oppressors. He he is what we would call today as well a predatory lender, a payday loan guy. when he would go to extract taxes from somebody the poor and they couldn't pay he would say don't worry about it i got gotcha. you and he would pay their taxes for them only he would demand of them in a wickedly high interest rate to ensure that they could never get out of his debt which ensured in turn that they lived in generational poverty he is george santos Tony Soprano, the IRS, and a payday loan shark all wrapped in one. We would have hated this guy, and justifiably so. And until we acknowledge that we would have hated this guy, we cannot feel the full force of this passage. The Bible calls him a sinner, people thought he was unclean. I don't even feel like these terms are strong enough. This guy is a predator, a loan shark, corrupt and shady. And that is exactly the Pharisees' point when they come to talk to Jesus. Levi, the tax collector, the loan shark, holds a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors, other loan sharks, show up and ate with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law bitterly complained bitterly to Jesus, why do you you eat and drink with such scum? Okay, okay, look. The way we read the Gospels and the way we read the Bible, we position ourselves always on the side of Jesus. We're like, well, we know that Jesus is going to be right, so we're just going to assume that the Pharisees are idiots. Allow yourself to feel the full force of the presence of somebody like Levi and all of his shady friends and you can understand why they ask this question. Why would you have anything to do with somebody like that? And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Jesus is partying at the house of a man who is known for exploiting the poor. And it's not even just any party. The Greek, in the Greek, Luke calls it a mega party. It's an all-out bash in Jesus' honor held by one of the most disreputable ne'er-do-gooders in the region. I love the word ne'er-do-gooders. I taught it to my children recently. He's a little worst. And they're not even done with their criticism. At this mega party, there's a massive, a massive amount of food and drink which would have been farmed on the backs of people who were probably near or under starvation level. And the Pharisees note this implicitly when they say to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? They're saying, listen, John lived an ascetic life out in the wilderness away from Rome's exploitive economy. He gave up his power and his privilege, any that he might have had, and he went and lived on the edge of society eating locusts and wild honey So that he didn't participate in the exploitive economy. Which by the way, like if you're not going to participate in the exploitive economy, literally about the only thing you can eat is bugs. This is what they're saying. This is how radically faithful John was. John even told tax collectors when they came to him, you remember several weeks ago we talked about this, John even told tax collectors when they came in and said, stop exploiting the poor. Which would have meant they couldn't continue to do their job. And the Pharisees' criticism here is that Jesus, unlike John's asceticism, Jesus and his disciples are out here throwing mega parties. To the point that in other places in the Gospels, people actually come to Jesus and they're like, You and your disciples are a bunch of lushes. You're just, you're drunks. You're always eating and drinking and who knows what carousing with the wrong people. I saw a TikTok video of a uh, woman who uh, was playing the role of Jesus's girlfriend. And she's talking on the phone and she's like explaining to her girlfriend. She's like, oh, he's not here right now. He's hanging out with prostitutes. (laughs) This is it. These are the people that Jesus is around. And so as I said, Jesus doesn't seem to help us that much, does he? Or maybe he does. The two questions the Pharisees asked Jesus may actually be relevant to helping us grasp what's happening. First, they ask... Why does Jesus eat with reputed traitors, 'er ne'er-do-gooders, and loan sharks? Why does he eat with this scum? And Jesus answers, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but to those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Okay, so just... Understand the absurdity of this metaphor. Imagine for a second that I go to the doctor tomorrow morning. I go in, nothing is wrong with me. I pay my copay, even though nothing is wrong with me. I sit in the waiting room for, I don't know, how long does it take to get into your doctor? An hour. And nothing is wrong with me. I fill out the little form and I say, nothing is wrong with me. The little chart that has the human body outline, it says, circle where you feel the pain. I don't circle anything. I don't ask for medicine. The nurse comes out and she says, Mr. First, will you come back? I even get weighed. And guess what? I weigh a healthy amount, which would be nice. But I weigh a healthy amount. She shows me back to the room where I'm going to meet with the doctor. I go in, I strip off all my clothes, I put on the gown, the one with the back door open, and I sit there on the examination table, I take selfies that I send to my wife. This is why she married me. And I wait for the doctor to come in and I just kick my legs waiting for the doctor to come in. And when the doctor comes in, he's like, Mr. First, what's wrong? I say, nothing. I just wanted to see you. It would be creepy. It would be creepy. You don't go to the doctor unless something's wrong. And Jesus is saying, listen, you folks, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need a doctor, you don't think you need a doctor. This guy knows he needs a doctor. It doesn't matter what his lot in life is. Luke is going to spend the rest of this gospel focusing on people who are down and out, people who are experiencing a hard time. He's going to focus his time on the marginalized and the poor. But in this instance, he talks about a wealthy man. He says, this guy knows he needs a doctor. The sick need a doctor. And Levi is sick. He is addicted to power. He is addicted to prestige. He is addicted to what Rome can give him. He is addicted to the market. And Jesus has come for people like them, him even when they're wealthy. But I should be very clear about something at this point. Unlike most of us pastors who don't encourage our congregants to think too deeply about their jobs and how their jobs may participate in or perpetuate economic injustice, Jesus absolutely calls his disciples to think about their jobs and whether they're exploitive or not. Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned as most pastors are with losing big donors. I mean, it kind of helps when you don't have a church building to pay for and you're just walking around all the time. But that's the point, right? John Wesley, our Methodist namesake, said this very thing. He said, he said Methodists, like, be careful what you invest your money in. Because the more you invest your money in things, the more you're dependent on the rich. And the more you're dependent on the rich, you can't tell them they're sick. When Jesus ate with Levi, who did an economically exploitive job, Jesus did not let it slide. This is why the very thing Luke tells us is that when Jesus says, come follow me and be my disciple, what does Levi do? He leaves his post, his job, and he comes and follows Jesus. Luke tells us that information on purpose. He left a job that was economically exploitive because it ran in opposition to the ethics that Jesus was calling him to. Jesus could not be paid off. Jesus could not be lured into silence because Levi could be a big donor. To follow Jesus cost Levi money. But oddly, whereas Jesus condemns unjustly gained wealth and whereas Jesus condemns the idol of wealth Jesus himself doesn't boycott the parties of the wealthy because the sick are there and so Jesus goes to those parties and he has a good time he understands that his social connections have given him the ability to be in certain settings that might be denied someone else and he uses that opportunity to be with the sick which brings us to the second question they ask him why do Jesus and his disciples seem to be committed to partying when John's disciples were committed to fasting? And Jesus answers this question again with a metaphor. He says, do wedding guests fast while celebrating the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Let's explore this one. In your experience with bachelor parties, are they known for being times of sobriety, fasting and general discipline? No. If Hollywood made a movie about a bachelor party where everyone just sat around not eating, none of you would go. You go to the stories about bachelor parties where things get crazy out of control. That's the reputation that bachelor parties had. John fasted because he was waiting for the Messiah to come. But now that the Messiah has come, now that the groom-to-be has arrived, it is not a time for fasting. It is a time for celebration. In other words, notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you and I think of people that are particularly holy, we think of somebody like Mother Teresa, right? We think of somebody who gives their entire life just to being with the poorest of the poor. And then we feel this shame because we can't do the same thing. Or maybe we don't want to do the same thing. And we feel shame and we feel guilt. And then we say, oh, that, that must just be her. And Jesus is actually saying, actually... That's true. Not everybody, and not at all times, is the Christian community called to voluntary poverty. There are seasons where that is appropriate, and there are seasons where feasting is appropriate. Thus, again, to quote our Mennonite pastor friend, Jesus' intention for the new order of God's reign is not to universal poverty through asceticism. Again, this is a person who would know. But you say, "Listen, how does Jesus say it?" He says. There was a time for fasting and asceticism and voluntary poverty. And there is a time for parties and feasting. There is a time that is appropriate to both. Parties and voluntary poverty both have their times and places. There are times and places where you and I are asked to throw parties. And when we're throwing those parties justly, we do not exploit the poor. But there are also times when you and I are asked to give everything away. This is why it matters that Levi left his job. There are times when it is fully appropriate for us to lose jobs. To give everything away. The ethics of Jesus then... Require that Christians evaluate the virtues of their vocation. That is, is my job good, just, and right? And ask whether they can, in good Christian conscience, continue to do jobs that exploit the poor. Can I continue to work in a company that I know exploits the poor? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because, because frankly, most of us, we work for a mixed bag. Some of you, might, some of you, you might work for the government, and you're like, well, <laughs> how do I handle that? The government is, is, I mean, we do good things, right? But we also have systems that are unjust and racist and classist. And I think it just simply begins with us asking these questions to being serious about it. Imagine with me for a second. Again, because because I want you to see to be faithful to this. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't even have to do what I do. The holiest people, the most faithful people are not Pastors and priests. There are pastors and priests that are just as corrupt and they work in corrupt systems. Listen, I work for the church. Just pay a little bit of attention to the media and you can see that the church can be really corrupt. But imagine, imagine the 1950s and the 1960s. Imagine if real estate Agents in the 1950s and 60s, Christian real estate agents said, you know what? Racially discriminating housing is exploitive, segregation in housing is racist, and it denies the image of God in non white folks. I will not participate in that. I will seek to change my company. I will seek to change the system. And if I cannot, I will do something else. Imagine if Christians had done that in the 1950s and 60s. Imagine, I I one time said uh, that I think the most prophetic job, vocation in American history has probably been real estate agent. And my friend Greg Spilliards, who is there, who is a white, upper middle class, real estate agent, said, I agree. And he has spent a good part of his career trying to help Memphis be less economically exploitive. Real estate agent. Imagine if city planners in every major city, but, but but especially in Memphis, if city planners were concerned about the class and race implications of where we made highways. Who was hurt? by where highways were placed, usually poor people and black folks. Nothing about how our city is arranged is accidental. But this is a city in the Bible belt with probably at least 85% of our people at least claiming to be Christian, whatever that means to them. It doesn't have to be this way, and yet it is because so many Christians have not asked, What can I do in my work to provide an alternative vision? And this is my point. It is the same Levi that left his job that throws Jesus a massive party. They're not opposites necessarily. There's just an appropriate season for both. The spiritual masters say that we should fast during fasting times and feast during feasting times. There are times when Christians are called to give everything away. And I think white, wealthy Christians should consider that as an option far more than we actually do. Do you all know the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says, give everything away and come follow me. And the guy goes away sorrow because he, he can't do it. Every time I have ever heard a pastor preach that, there's like, you know, like it's just a metaphor. He's talking about like, give everything, give everything in your heart to Jesus. No, like he's literally talking about everything the man owns. We soften the blow so that Jesus doesn't appear as radical. So that we can feel better about ourselves. American Christians should consider more the call to give everything away. But while there is a time for fasting, there is also a time for feasting. And Jesus fights for our right to party. He is committed to it. Because God's world is a world of abundance And the reason there's exploitation of the poor is not because there isn't enough resources in the world. It is because a minority of people in this world have decided they need more than they actually need. While the majority of this world lives on under what they need. And Jesus says that our feasting is appropriate and possible in God's world. Because when done right, everybody has enough. Not all of the early Christians were poor, despite popular conceptions. Did you know that G- who funds Jesus' ministry? Rich white women. I'm sorry, not rich white women, rich, rich women. Rich, rich Jewish women, they weren't white. It would be equivalent to rich white women today. There's a reason Jesus is buried in like a king's tomb and he's buried in like, like royal robes because he had wealthy women who were following him around funding his ministry. Listen, Jesus, <laughs> you can't walk around for three years and expect to live without working a job without somebody footing the bill. Jesus' ministry was supported by women, wealthy women. Paul's houses, his house churches, They were in houses for a reason, but the poor didn't have houses big enough to house all of them, to congregate all those people. So where did they meet? They met in wealthy people's houses. And so Paul and Jesus both see a place for wealth in the world, but not to the exclusion of the poor and the needs of the poor. This is what Paul says over and over. We just went through 1 Corinthians last year. You remember, we got to this section all throughout throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul is really arguing about class, that the wealthy are assuming a certain amount of privilege in the way worship is organized in their home because it's in their rich person home. And Paul is like, nope, you exist for the sake of the poor. They are as welcome as you are at these feasts. In other words, he is telling them their allegiances are not primarily to the well, primarily to the wealthy in the kingdom of God, but the poor, or the in the kingdom of Rome, but the poor in the kingdom of God. And so, as I wind down, I very intentionally used the phrase "kingdom of God" here, because Luke refers to these mega parties, mega banquets, all throughout his gospel. If you read the gospel of Luke, Jesus is always at somebody's party. But Luke is not merely describing who Jesus is hanging out with. Luke is symbolizing something very powerful. Luke is saying that these parties, where the sick gather, are what God's in-time party is going to look like. The parties that Jesus joins are a foreshadowing of God's future party which will be filled with people that you and I hate. God's end times party is where sinners and saints gather as a single community without moral distinction. Jews and Gentiles gather as a single community without moral or ethnic racial distinction God's end times party is filled with the rich and poor, but where the poor are given preferential treatment. And it is previewed, God's end times party is previewed in the parties and the people that you and I welcome now. How are we using our resources, what we do have, to be a people of welcome who reflect God's welcome in the world? And so this kingdom calls the wealthy into God's kingdom. This kingdom calls them to the costly adventure of following Jesus in a world of exploitive economics. But this kingdom also calls the poor into a kingdom where they never have to pay anybody back. Where they make a wage that is livable where they're not slave labor in somebody else's economy, where they don't have to fear where their next meal is coming from, and where their children can go to school instead of working at a Cheerios factory. The call to both the rich and the poor and everyone in between is to challenge the exploitive economics of the world. So I don't know. Maybe Jesus did have something to say about it after all. Friends, I'm going to invite our communion servers forward at this time. We receive communion every week because this is a meal where no transaction takes place. It is a time where we Sabbath by resting in the identity that God has given us as people who are recipients of God's sustenance and God's mercy.